Hi, I'm Kyone Wolf, and welcome to the Scramble, our Monday, our Monday show where Monday show where we try Taylor Swift. Would you please stop dancing and whipping your hair around? It's really distracting. Okay, welcome to our Monday show. Come on, please stop. There's not even music playing, so it's kind of weird. Okay, welcome to the Scramble, our Monday show. We're too close, too close. You're dancing way too close to me, Taylor. I'll stay in this half of the studio and do my job, and you stay in that half and dance and be weird and whatever else you're doing. Welcome to the Scramble, our Monday show about people who always have to be the center of attention. Anybody standing near me fit that description? Today on the show, we'll talk about new progressives in the Democratic Party, a new development in Connecticut's fight over freedom of information, and whether it's immoral to watch the Super Bowl. And now he stays up till 10.30 to get lucky, Colin McEnroe. It, at my age, if it's longer than that, I just have to go to bed. Uh, so I don't relate well to Daft Punk. And I do agree it's, it's a shame what Taylor Swift is doing these days, just going everywhere that she can and dancing and being, frankly, a distraction. Uh, here's the scramble. That's our Monday show. What we do here is we put, the, we put the show together on shorter notice than we typically do with most of our shows. Uh, it allows us to react a little bit to things that interest us over the weekend. Uh, and other stuff in the news. And so uh, let me tell you about what's coming up uh, a little bit later, and then we'll get to what's happening now. Um, actually, uh, in the second segment, we are going to talk to Steve Allman, uh, a short story writer and essayist, a guy we like a lot, who had a piece in the New York Times uh, on Sunday on, in the Times Magazine suggesting that he has decided, anyway, personally, for him, that it's immoral to watch the Super Bowl for some reasons that we'll probably also touch on a little bit towards the end of this first segment. And then in our final segment, Colleen Murphy, who is the executive director and general counsel for Connecticut's Freedom of Information Commission, will uh, tell us about a vote that was taken on this special task force on Friday, which will set up a battle in our own state legislature over Connecticut's Freedom of Information Law, the oldest such law in the nation, but a law which has been under assault uh, steadily over the last 12 months or more, and uh, based on the vote of this task force, is facing, uh, will face kind of a crisis in the legislature this year. We'll see how that all pans out. Uh, if, you, if, you see, if you hear emotion creeping into my voice, I'm not entirely neutral on that particular subject. So one of the things we do on, the, on, Monday, on Monday on The Scramble is we invite one guest. We, I've taken to calling him the super guest. Uh, and we just ask the guest to tell us what uh, he or she is interested in, and then we get ready to have a conversation about that. So our guest today is Mark Tracy. He is a staff writer at The New Republic and the co-editor of Jewish Jocks. Uh, he's got three topics for us, and we're going to get going right now. Welcome to the show, Mark Tracy. Thanks for having me, and thanks for calling me super. Yes, well, you are. You are a super guest today. So we're going to start out with um, with, with some people that you refer to as new progressives, uh, a, a group of people embodied by um, Elizabeth Warren, Bill de Blasio, and perhaps nobody else, uh, although, <laughs> <laughs> although according to Tom Perkins, uh, the $8 billion paranoid man, there's this huge cabal of people who are going yeah, to redistribute right. wealth so radically that it will resemble Nazi Germany for the super rich. But but really, you know, as we look out there, as we, as we look at these leaders of of what conceivably could be a grassroots movement of new progressives, we really do see Warren and de Blasio. I don't know, is there anybody else on the horizon? No, I mean, like, so for example, I was at an event in New York City Thursday night uh, with Senator Warren. It was actually her first ever event, uh, public event in New York. Um, and uh, she was joined by Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, New York Attorney General, that is, who would, abs- who would I think, be considered in this group. I mean, you know, I think there are cert- certain figures who would have embodied this. Elliot Spitzer was one, I think, um, in California, you have uh, some quieter progressives sort of at the mayoral level. Um, I think that in Washington, you'll have plenty of people sort of eager to claim the mantle. Um, it remains to be seen whether they really 
uh, will have it. And, but, but most importantly, I think there are lots of sort of just voters uh, in the Democratic Party um, who are very excited by, you saw this when Warren was running for Senate and she, you know, had a record number of, of small dollar donations. Um, you know, there there is an excitement for this kind of, it's not clear whether it's for the progressive policies or for the populist rhetoric or both, um, which is an interesting question. There is no doubt, however, that they, they are not the, the powerful force in the party. The powerful force in the party remains sort of the establishment, which is a little more moderate. Um, and so the, the chief drama over the next year and the next three years is going to be watching this less powerful movement try to influence the more powerful leaders in their direction. Yeah, in your piece about Elizabeth Warren, you begin by saying that baby boomers really like her. And, you know, and if there really is, as you say, among voters, any kind of appetite for that kind of populism uh, or that kind of progressivism, it's as though at the party level, it's as though Toyota, you know, judging the, the the popularity of the Prius, then made like five of them. Right. Uh, and and so um, you, there's two things that can happen in a situation like this. And we've seen the other thing in the Republican Party. There can be a genuine fight with established leadership. Right. Uh, over what the party's all about uh, and, and who should be in control of it. We've seen what happens uh, when a grassroots movement rises up within the Republican Party and takes on leadership. We're still watching that blood being spilled. But as you're suggesting, it, it seems like in the, on the Democratic side, there's a lot of needle threading going on as opposed to a real engagement around these issues. I, I, I think that's right. Um, and I, uh, you know, I just think that... Um, I mean, I, I obviously I live in New York, so I follow it extra closely. But there really is a great sort of uh, almost case study playing out in New York right now with uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, who is more moderate, who's running for re-election this year, expressly on a platform of lowering, of having lower, of having kept taxes low during his uh, tenure, versus De Blasio, who wants, who literally was in Albany earlier today. Um, in fact, he's probably still there, uh, trying to urge the the state government, but really Cuomo. Uh, to allow him to tax um, the wealthiest, uh, specifically people making five hundred thousand dollars or more, in New York City, and I mean, I think that speaks to the broader thing. And the reason I think, you know, this is going to resonate is just uh, the self-interest factor. Given the way the recovery from the the recession of two thousand eight, two thousand nine has gone, with the benefits overwhelmingly accruing. You know, not not just to like the top half or the top third or even the top tenth, but like to the top one percent and, and to the top point zero one percent. I mean, that just leaves a lot of people, <laughs> by definition, um, Democrats and Republicans, of course, but among Democrats, it leaves a lot of people who I think are becoming increasingly aware that um, you know there is pervasive inequality and um, sort of uh, are going to be more amenable to proposals that that aim to fix that. Yeah, you know, one of the, one of the pieces uh, that Mark Tracy did as uh, that uh, was shared with us as we got ready for this was a piece about De Blasio and kind of comically uh, a piece about um, how if you want to talk about big ideas, then you also have to make sure the streets get plowed uh, on <laughs> snowstorms or people get really mad at you. But but uh, another point that you make in the piece, and I thought it was a really interesting one, one that which is that De Blasio has talked about attacks on those rich people that you just described uh, in order to pay for pre-K, uh, and that Cuomo kind of countered with a an idea of funding pre-K from the state level. And you said that for de Blasio, the tax is is part of the discussion, that he wants to have that discussion. He doesn't want the money to come from the state because he wants to have that converse, conversation about whether redistribution is a plausible thing to talk about. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, actually. I may even write about this more because it's continuing to play out as de Blasio, as I say, goes up to Albany. Um, you know, the original argument made by sort of 
maybe like centrist progressives was that yeah you know pre-kindergarten is a great thing uh but you know if we can get get it done without raising taxes and all the better and that's a sort of classic sort of like 1990s new democrat approach which you know for its time might have made at least political sense um and maybe even arguably made economic sense given given the sort of structure of the economy then i mean that's a that's a debate we don't need to have um but and then so that this has been playing out cuomo says you know well you don't need to raise taxes because I have these state funds here and they'll pay for pre-kindergarten. And there's some problems with that. It's less funding, um, for example, uh, than de Blasio's plan would, would supply, which is obviously important. But, uh, you know, uh, de Blasio countered that with, no, I, I, I want this tax raise. And then Republicans um, in, in New York um, and as well as some centrist Democrats, in fact, including Cuomo's people who gave a couple anonymous quotes to the New York Post today about this very issue, were essentially saying, you know, the tax is symbolic. You know, de Blasio just wants the tax for the tax's sake. And, you know, the Texas symbolic argument makes no sense because if it were actually symbolic, then, then no one would care about it. Um, I mean, it does reveal a truth, which is that the tax, you know, we're going to need to speak in abstract about it, the tax would raise the income tax of those making $500,000 or more by 0.5%, which is not, I mean, it's not literally nothing, but as de Blasio put it in his inaugural address, it's basically the equivalent of a soy latte a day. It's about three bucks a day, which isn't nothing. I mean, that's money. And, you know, um, we'd be asking the wealthiest to pay an even more disproportionate share of theirs. But given uh, the way the federal tax structure works where lots of the very wealthiest actually pay less in taxes than their secretaries, this is famous. I don't think it's that unreasonable. And so, but yeah, I think the debate that de Blasio wants to have, I mean, it's going to be hard to really put it this way. It's easier for me to put this way, you know, sitting, you know, in my, at my desk at a, at a liberal national magazine, to be sure, is that there's inherent worth in a tax on the very wealthiest when both the tax system and the structure of the economy and basically everything, just everything, is militating toward the very wealthiest uh, getting more and more pre-tax and post-tax income. It's just, it's an inherently good thing, and it's a transfer of wealth. We're taking it from, we would be taking it from, you know, the wealthiest by definition and transferring it to public schools, which is to say, in the broadest sense, it's transferring it from the wealthiest to everyone, and more specifically, it's most likely transferring it from the very wealthiest to not the least wealthy, but, you know, the great majority of, you know, lower class, middle class, even upper middle class in New York City. Many, many people send their children to public school, obviously, and that's not just poor people who do. Um, and that seems like a reasonable thing to stand for. And it's, in fact, exactly what de Blasio ran on and, and won overwhelmingly on. You know, I'm going to make a smooth transition uh, to our, our next topic because, you know, there's a certain group of Americans who are probably listening to this conversation and saying, what do you mean there's only two new progressives in all of Democratic leadership? There's mass socialism descending on us constantly all the time from the Democratic Party. Now, the people thinking that are often people who watch Fox News. Uh, and Fox News is sort of back in the con national conversation for a variety of reasons. Uh, Gabriel Sherman's uh, got a new book out about Roger Ailes and, and the creation uh, of Fox News. Uh, and then in New York Magazine, an article that uh, you pointed out to us, but we always read Frank Rich anyway. Um, he talks about whether or not Fox News is really as relevant as we make it seem. In other words, if you watch anything from Saturday Night Live to The Daily Show to uh, to a, a lot of contemporary journalism, and uh, to say nothing of MediaMatters.org, correcting Fox News, blocking some of the things that Fox News has to say, seems very, very important. But um, Frank Rich makes the argument, and other people have made it too, that really this is kind of a downturn time for that medium itself, for cable news, uh, cable news networks. You know, how important ultimately is Fox News going to be in the next five years? What's your take on this? I mean, my take is, um, you know, we have to distinguish in terms of importance. As a business enterprise, um, 
Fox News remains as relevant as ever. It's you know, extremely successful, and um, Roger Ailes deserves, frankly, a lot of credit for that. Um, you know, he, he he does good work for News Corp, and which is actually what he's paid to do. Um, the argument, however, which has been made, really, I mean, God, I, I don't remember the first time I heard it, but like, you know, we saw it in that documentary in 2004, which was excellent. We've seen it before that, and then, you know, in, in more recent years, it's been people like Gabriel Sherman. Um, you know, who argued uh, both in his new book and also in a 2011 New York Magazine piece that sort of Roger Ailes was actively hurting the Republican Party, basically, um, that, you know, Fox as the argument was that, you know, Fox is basically the ringleader of the Republican Party. I mean, there was one point during the 2012 cycle when something like half of the uh, Republican candidates had at one time been on the Fox News payroll. Um, But, right, I think the new way of thinking about this is probably accurate, which is that uh, as, as, as Frank Rich argues, you know, the days of Fox News' overwhelming sort of influence are probably waning. I'd even take it a step further, and I, I wrote this um, maybe a, a week or two ago. Um, the analogy I, I had was actually, you know, if you know um, about what's going on in the House of Representatives, you know that the House of Representatives is going to be Republican probably at least until 2020, uh, not, to, not to predict too far in the future. But the reason for that is that um, – in 2010, there was redistricting, and Republicans controlled a lot of state legislatures, and they gerrymandered lots of safe seats. So now you have lots of seats that are sort of re- very safely Republican and very out of touch sort of with the direction the country's moving in. They're older, uh, they're whiter, um, and they're more conservative. And in fact, that's an almost exact uh, sort of demographic of Fox News. And in fact, it's really the exact demographic of cable. Fox News has the oldest viewership. It has a average viewership, I believe, of like 68. 68 uh, yeah. But MSNBC and CNN have an average, have a medium viewership, not average, I'm sorry, medium viewership of 60. It's not like it's spring chickens watching them. Um, Fox News is basically a gigantic gerrymandered district, so that's great if you're Roger Ailes and your job is to, you know, continue doing your job at Fox News and at News Corp and have Rupert Murdoch continue to like you for making profit for his company. Fox News is going to do well because it's identified a base and it serves that base and it does a great job serving that base, but in terms of influencing the broader country, it's going to have a lot harder time doing that because it's not reaching the growing segments of the country, the growing segments being young, the growing segments being minority, the growing segments being socially liberal. It's, it's not reaching those people because it's not designed to reach those people. And one even further ironic thing is by telling the sort of fading demographic demographics in the country that, you know, they're victims and they're under attack is, is really giving them... A, you know, I, I think it's kind of almost uh, delusional and counterproductive when, in fact, you know, if, if Roger Ailes were truly dedicated first and foremost to being a political operative, he'd be telling his his audience, you know, the times they are a change in, here's how we can change with them while still, you know, electing Republicans, still holding to fast to certain values that are non-negotiable. I mean, I think the other real question is you look at any of these cable news uh, networks, but, I mean, Fox is the one that's most interesting to people because it's by far still the most popular. Oh, yeah. Is that, you know, as the audience is changing, are they going to be able to change to keep up with that? And uh, you know, that 68 uh, median viewership, 68-year-old median viewership is uh, a bad sign for anybody. Then you look at, I was looking at the Neiman Journalism Lab site today. They talked about the fact that CNN, last year CNN's uh, audience, 40% of it was uh, mobile. In other words, you, looking at CNN on mobile devices, mm-hmm. uh, which 
you know, and that's not even with CNN necessarily having done a fa- fabulous job tailoring itself right. for mobile devices. And yeah. so, you know, to whatever extent, Fox is still a creature of Roger Ailes, who's very much a creature of television, doesn't really think digitally all that much. You just wonder how prepared any of these entities, but particularly Fox News, is for the next stage of the digital revolution and the turning away from traditional conventional television watching. I think it's a great perspective. And by the way, that, that figure is similar to the New York Times. New York Times gets about 40 to 50 percent of its traffic from, from mobile. Um, and I mean, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and again, uh, television cable news has, I don't know if this will be true forever, but for the immediately foreseeable future, for the, let's say, medium term to short term, long term future, cable television is going to remain a lucrative business. So in that sense, uh, you know, again, mission accomplished for Roger Ailes. And in fact, it almost creates a false incentive for him, assuming his incentive, look, maybe Roger Ailes actually doesn't care about the direction of the National Republican Party. The reporting suggests otherwise, but let's say hypothetically he didn't, and his goal is solely to make more profit from Fox News, then, you know, God bless him, and, I mean, you know, not literally, but, uh, you know, then he's doing a good job for that, and, and that model is going to work in the foreseeable future. But it's kind of a weird, it's the exact wrong incentives um, if the goal of Fox News is, in fact, as it probably is to some extent, to sort of be a sort of breeding ground and a um, rallying place for for conservatives. Um, you know, a, a, you know, moving more, investing more in mobile, for example, might not be the smartest short-term business decision. That requires a big investment. Um, you're probably putting it on for free. Um, Ads for mobile are not remotely, it's not remotely as lucrative as, I mean, my God, television ads. Uh, so that's probably not a great short-term financial investment. And you know, it's uh, Fox News is a member of a of a company that that has a bottom line and has uh, owners and shareholders interested in the bottom line. Uh, but if the goal is, as you say, you know, to sort of like actually change minds and reach people, then they would be investing in mobile and things like that. I think that's a great way to think about it. All right. So uh, our final topic, here's another deft segue with uh, Mark Tracy from the, new, from the new Republic. Our deft segue this uh, Sunday, a lot of people will be watching some very, very expensive television ads, uh, as Mark Tracy was just yeah. talking about. And that'll be at the Super Bowl. Uh, one of the other things that you've written about recently is the story of David Tyree, who's uh, for any Giants fan, uh, a pretty well-known name. Maybe for the average football fan, they have to rack their brains a little bit uh, to explain uh, to themselves who he is, uh, but tell people who are listening right now who he is and, and why you were attracted to write about him. Um, David Tyree, for those who remember the Super Bowl six years ago, which was the perfect New England Patriots team, one of the greatest teams of all time. Had they won that Super Bowl, they probably would be remembered as the greatest team of all time, uh, against the fifth seed wild card, not very good uh, New York Giants. Um, who won the game, and there were several dramatic moments in the game, but the most dramatic moment of all was with about a minute left on third and five, driving down the field trying to score a go-ahead touchdown. Eli Manning uh, breaks out of what some, to this day, argue should have been a, a, a sack um, and hurls the ball, and a basically unknown receiver who was most, fam- most accomplished in his special teams work named David Tyree makes the so-called helmet catch. He grabs the ball, um, all-pro safety, Rodney Harrison is covering him. He pins the ball to his helmet, and as he's falling, then brings the ball in with both hands and secures the ball and converts the first down. And a few plays later, they, they scored that go-ahead touchdown. And I talked to David uh, because there's a couple of interesting things about him. One, to me, is just it is fascinating to me that that this is 
really one of the probably five most famous plays, most dramatic plays in NFL history, and it was not accomplished by a particularly uh, famous or otherwise accomplished uh, in terms of his NFL career guy. Uh, the other interesting thing to me, and the reason sort of that really prompted me to write the piece was I was seeing Commissioner Roger Goodell speak a few weeks ago, and must have been some Giants fan made some Tyree reference because, as I say, as you said, you know the average football fan may not have heard of him, but if you're a New York Giants fan, you know exactly who David Tyree is. Um, and Goodell mentioned that he was working at the NFL office now, and I found that fascinating. And it turns out it's even more interesting. What he's doing uh, is working in what's called a player engagement, um, which is essentially outreach to prep schoolers, to current players, and to retired players such as himself. And he has a fascinating sort of perspective on being a retired player because he has this amazing moment, but at the same time, he was never that high, um, and he kind of had an adjustment period between the catch, which was the final one of his career, uh, and his retirement, and he's a really well-adjusted guy. Um, He's a devout Christian. He's married. He has seven children. He's sober after having been maybe an addict, uh, at least an alcoholic, rather, Um, and just an interesting guy, and it was a pleasure to sit with him and, and to write about him. We're going to have to wrap this up, although I just did want, did want to observe that one of your quotes from him. He, ta- he says, we live a life of invincibility while we're playing, because when the contract is right and the money's coming in, you don't feel like you have need. Then right. retirement hits and our world begins to unravel. You know that word invincibility, and it popped back up today. I don't know if you noticed it, but I'm sure you did read the profile of Rayfield Wright, the former Dallas Cowboys uh, yeah. uh, offensive lineman, and uh, he's now facing severe dementia problems, very worried about what it means. Uh, this is the, today's New York Times sports section, and his quote was, you don't want people to look at you any differently when you've been at the top of the NFL. You don't want people to know. You're supposed to be tough and invincible. Yeah. So if something's wrong with you, you try to hide it, which is exactly what I did. So much of that invincibility starting to unravel for a lot of different players. Which is insane. No one's invincible. I mean, it really tells you a lot about the mindset. That, that's No one's invincible. It's amazing. Yeah. Mark Tracy, we're going to take a break, break here. We're going to come back with Steve Allman talking about why he's not even going to watch the Super Bowl yeah. this year uh, for reasons having to do with what we just talked about. Great to have you as our super guest. Come back again someday, and we'll be back with Steve after this. Everybody knows that I'm a legend. I'm a Uh, you just heard us end our previous segment with Mark Tracy with a conversation uh, about the NFL, and we're going to bleed from there uh, and perhaps literally bleed from there uh, into a, a separate conversation. Steve Allman has been a guest on this show many times, a short story writer, essayist, author of 10 books, including the award-winning Candy Freak, which we've discussed with him, and also God Bless America, which we've also discussed with him. Uh, on Sunday in the New York Times Magazine, he had an essay about whether or not it's immoral to watch the Super Bowl. And uh, I'll just read one quote from it because I really think he kind of distilled something that's been on a lot of our minds, but but uh, maybe not in a way that we could put so eloquently into words. He says, the struggle playing out in living rooms across the country is that of a civilian leisure class that has created for its own entertainment a cast of warriors too big and strong and fast to play a child's game without grievously injuring one another. The very rules that govern our perceptions of them might well be applied to soldiers. Those who exhibit impulsive savagery on the field are heroes. Those who do so off the field are reviled monsters. The civilian and the fan participate in the same basic transaction. We offload the mortal burdens of combat, mostly to young men from the underclass, whom we send off to battle with cheers and largely ignore when they wind up wounded. Steve Allman, let's back up a little bit. A lot of this is occasioned 
first of all, by your own experience as a, as a young fan going back to, to your childhood, and then the understanding that's seeping in with all of us about what this game does to men's bodies and specifically their brains, right? Yeah, like a lot of people, in writing the piece, I knew that I was, like it made me uncomfortable, it made all my football-watching pals uncomfortable, but the data is out there. The journalists have been covering this, and it's gotten to the point where even you know, so the casual fan knows at this point that just because of how big and strong the athletes have gotten in the nature of football, just as a product of routine play, not some dramatic catastrophic injury, but just routine play is enough to put players at serious risk for this chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which is a, a form of dementia. So that was what happened to you know, Junior Seau, clearly had that. His brain was autopsied, and it was revealed that he, like a lot of other former players, suffered from this. And it's also become clear that the NFL has done everything they can as a company you would expect a, company, a major, huge corporation to do to not specifically say, we've got to get serious about this. Uh, these employees are getting brain damaged by playing this game. But to really delay and obfuscate and stonewall and minimize the problem. And so at a certain point, you say, well, okay, so how does it all run? Well, it runs because guys like me and maybe guys like some of your listeners basically decide to not worry about the fact that we're watching people engaged in a form of entertainment that is um, lethal to them or we make the rationalizations. They earn lots of money. They're adults. They know what they're doing. It's dangerous to be a coal miner or whatever else. But for me, it just got to a point where I was like, eh, I just feel like I'm taking part in something that is complicit and something that's immoral. And every American and probably every person on earth in some way or another is complicit in stuff that's immoral. But it felt really weird and creepy for me to um, kind of just be consuming this, what I knew was dangerous violence, unlike video games or a movie where you can say, oh, well, it's just an escapist fantasy. No, that Junior Seau really did kill himself. These other athletes, Mike Webster, whoever it is, early signs are that there'll be you know, a whole new generation of athletes, NFL players, who really do suffer from early onsetting dementia or other forms of neurological damage because of their play, and that's gotten harder to ignore. You may not have seen it. It just hit the New York Times this morning. Uh, they have a profile of Rayfield Wright, a former offensive lineman of the Dallas Cowboys. That same story. And, Steve, it seems to me that you know there, are, there there's a whole spectrum of responses to this. On one end of the spectrum, you have, as you kind of suggested, a whole bunch of people who just aren't thinking about this very much or to whatever degree they think about it. They enjoy the game. They understand that the NFL has put in place some concussion protocols that are more extensive and more precautionary than what existed in the past. They may even, if they paid any attention, attention at all. No, there's a settlement on the table, although uh, the New York Times columnist writing about it today called it a shameful settlement, and the judge has actually rejected it already as too small. But anyway, so there's a whole bunch of people just who just say, screw it. I love the game. I don't know, concussions, whatever. It's part of the game. But then the, I think the spectrum kind of unravels from there and, and goes forward. And so there are people like you uh, on uh, on maybe the opposite end of the spectrum. You just said you can't deal with this anymore, and you don't want to be complicit in it. And then there's like this whole bunch of other, uh, other people, including me, who I understand everything that you understand. And I'm probably about similarly informed to you about the consequences of this game. But, you know, it's like Brokeback Mountain or something. I just can't quit it yet. Um, <laughs> yep. And, and I, I think that's also the case. You, you actually, you describe an encounter you have with, a, I think, a neighbor uh, of yep. yours who says, don't take this away from me. T- tell that story a little bit. Well, it's just, he's a guy who is, was an amazing football player. He's 
physically a large guy, and we play catch, and, you know, I'll, I'll be like 20 yards away from him, like heaving the ball with my arthritic shoulder trying to get it to him, and that's just a warm-up toss for him. And he's a guy who is unbelievably physically agile, and, uh, and, he's, and he's big. He's, you know, 6'4", 250, easy. And he's just, you sort of see him and go, that guy could play at least at the college level, maybe in the NFL. And, in fact, as a kid, he was extremely good, and it was clear that he was, you know, somebody who just had those gifts, was just given those gifts. That's part of the reason we watch professional sports, because certain people are, are given a, a kind of gift, and then they hone it and get better and better, and they make unbelievably graceful, intuitive decisions. And they're so, we all wish that we sort of had that kind of physical grace, but also um, sort of power of concentration. So I totally get that. I'm a huge fan of the game. But for Sean, he also basically had the experience of hurting people and at one point, he told me a number of stories in which he injured players. He's about 11 or you know, 10 or 11 years old, but one in particular where he hit a guy, sort of the star running back of the other team, and the kid fell on the ground, and he, Sean was certain that he killed him. They couldn't bring the kid, uh, couldn't get him conscious with smelling salts, and the coaches ran out to the field, and his parents, the kid's parents ran out to the field. And Sean, who's a very sensitive guy, was literally just weeping about this, and and at the same time trying to understand or trying to hide from his teammates who were congratulating him on this amazing hit, trying to hide from them that he was really traumatized and upset that he, he thought he had killed this kid. So you really kind of think about what you're having to put aside as a fan. It's pretty small. You're sort of watching it on, on TV. But you think about the players themselves. Well, they're being told you know, economically and socially and in terms of their own identity, this is really how you succeed. You have to be the most vicious. You have to put out of your mind that that's another human being that you're hitting hard and trying to get off the field, out of the game, in a state of terror and maybe injury. And you really think about that, and you think, well, that's really the warrior mentality. And that's basically what we train soldiers to do. So I completely understand. I have trouble. I don't, like, it's not like I'm quitting the game like self-righteously. I'm anguished by this. And my friend Sean is the same way you are. He's basically like... The game was taken from me. I didn't allow myself to keep playing it. Don't take being a fan from me, was what he was saying. And I completely get that. I'm not, I didn't want to write a polemic or something that was self-righteous or looking down on those foolish savages who watch football. I'm one of them. But it's also true that at a certain point you get a certain amount of information, and it's really hard at that point, knowing that, if you want to live with yourself, to say, yeah, it's really more important that I enjoy this afternoon and unwind and so forth, that's really more important than the fact that the guys I'm watching make these plays, that there's a significant chance that not because they get into a big collision or get a concussion, but just the accretion of 10,000 sub-concussive events is going to cause them to be brain damaged. It's really hard to really, if you're really looking at it, it's hard to say, yeah, actually, my leisure time is more important than that. So now you're making me and Sean feel really bad. Um, and, and I think one of the things that's happening is... But I, mean, I feel bad. I'm not doing anything <laughs> to you that I haven't done to myself. I understand. I, I think one of the, you know, rather than there being an abrupt change in American attitudes, I, I think it's going to be a gradual one. And I've, I've noticed it in myself this season, 
happen to be a Green Bay Packers fan for obscure reasons. This year, this fabulously talented tight end, Jermichael Finley, from whom we've been expecting great things, never quite seen quite the season we think we're going to get out of him. But he got leveled a couple of times, and the second time that he had a – it was clear he had a, a concussion the first time, came back a few weeks later, got leveled again. This time it was a neck injury, and I was watching him lying on the field, and I was thinking, well, I watched this game, why? And and But then I think the other thing, and I think this is true, truer now with some fans. One thing that I was thinking is don't come back. Don't come back to this game. Go home. If you're okay, go home. Play with your kids. Never play football again. I hope the Packers don't let you back on the field, which they're apparently not going to do. I mean, maybe that's the first change. And then, you know, a year goes by, another year goes by. And gradually, I don't know, we may not get to your stage of enlightenment about this quite as quickly, but I feel like I'm on some kind of journey that probably ends right about where you are right now. Well, it's interesting. I'm getting, you know, some angry emails about this, as you would expect, and they all are sort of saying, you know, you're high and mighty nonsense. It's the nanny state. You're a wuss. You know, it's all kind of crazy, macho, sort of Fox News garbage. But I'm not enlightened about this. What I feel is that I have been a participant. I support economically. And the reason that that Michael Finley is going to come back is because He's done this all his life. It's his identity. It's his sense of who he is within the environment of the NFL. But the reason the Green Bay Packers are going to allow him to come back or even encourage him to come back is because it's a huge business. Even the most enlightened of teams, right, the Green Bay Packers, the least capitalist of right. teams in the NFL. Actually, they're not letting him back. They're not going to let him come back. It may be because of what you're alluding to right now, which is they are not conventionally owned by right. you know commercial ownership. Anyway, continue. Right, but at a certain point, you have to see what I came to is realizing, well, you could sort of say, well, you know, you stay involved with the fan and write letters to the league and so forth. Maybe they'll change their policies. It's like, what corporation does that really work for? The only thing that is going to decrease that I feel is going to cause the NFL to change is if it hits them where they actually live in their pocketbook. And enough people start to say, you know what? So you clean up your act. We don't want to be party to this, even though we love it and we get it and we're all savages deep down and you're connecting us to that. And But you know what? I don't need to see another concussed father on the field this season, or at least I don't want to see one every game because it feels to me like I'm seeing them every game at this point. So it's sort of a feeling of like, well, I'm participating in that system, just being a fan, especially with the NFL where so much of the revenue does come from just passive $5 billion for the TV rights. So it's not just that we're um, you know, going to sort of write a letter to the editor. I felt like, well, wait a second. If you really want to affect change and get them to clean up their act and have a game that is, I don't mean that it's going to be touch football, but they're really going to take it seriously and say, you know what, we have zero tolerance. When a player seems like they're at risk or have taken too many hits, we're going to make sure they no longer play and they're not let back on the field and we're going to put a bunch of other rules in place that really have teeth to prevent this risk of brain trauma. You know, that's not going to happen until a, a significant number of fans say, I'm not giving you any more of my money, because that is what drives it. Um, last question, Steve Allman. What will you do this Sunday? Will you be sort of aware in a nagging way that you're not watching the Super Bowl, or will you just go through, will you schedule some special activity, go to a movie or something like that to distract yourself? Yeah. Or? Well, I have three small kids, so I'll be being pummeled probably and concussed by my children, but <laughs> It is an issue, and I do think about it because the other thing about football in general and the allure of it is it's a way mostly for men but also just for people who are fans more broadly to connect. It's kind of the lingua franca of American masculinity, and when you're out of sync with it, 
it really does put you in this weird spot. It's not like I'm just not going to watch the game. I'm also not going to really be able to, in a guilt-free way, talk with my friends about it and relive it and have a social event with them. So that's almost what I miss more than just watching the games is that I am sort of turning my back on this brotherhood that is that we need it. Like, our lives are stressful, and sometimes you just do want to connect to the primal pleasures of watching people play a game who are incredibly good at it and graceful and beautiful athletes. So that's, I think, what I'm going to miss. And I'll probably, you know, go see a movie or just try to do something, spend time with my family and be happy that I still have what what little brain power I have left after three kids. All right. And the Olympics are coming anyway. Steve Allman, so great to talk to you. Steve Allman's books include most recently God Bless America stories. And uh, thanks for joining us again, Steve. Thank you, Colin. Okay. Take care, man. Bye-bye. It's awful, it's putrid, it's crummy, it's stupid, gonna throw my saddle away, I can't watch this. Can't watch this. Can't watch this. Yo. Get me out of here. Turn off your television. How about if I close my eyes during the game and only watch the commercials and mainly just show up for the chili? Then can I go to a Super Bowl party at Roger Ailes' house with Taylor Swift? It's just getting worse now, right? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our executive producer is Katie Talarski, and Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jay Leno. For stories, show pages, videos, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff and their daft punk robot masks, visit WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Betsy Kaplan's Amazing World of Magic. And now, back to Colin. All right. I, you know, I misspoke about one thing there. The Green Bay Packers have not formally decided not to bring back Jermichael Finley. But typically with somebody with a severe cranial or neck kind of injury like that, they won't let them play again. Uh, they're free to go play someplace else, obviously. want to quickly mention, we during this segment, too, we might have a little bit of time for you to call in. We're going to be talking about Connecticut's Freedom of Information Law, our number 860-275-7266. That's 860-275-7266. You may tweet us at WNPR Colin. You just heard about that from Wolfie. Greg Hill's our tweet master, and you should follow us at WNPR. NPR, Colin. We like to have followers. All right, so just to sort of set the stage for you a little bit, last spring, towards the end of the uh, session of the General Assembly, in kind of a Mr. Hyde moment, uh, the General Assembly passed a a new law essentially exempting uh, crime scene uh, photos and uh, videos and uh, recordings and 911 calls and things like that uh, from the Freedom of Information Law when they pertain to homicide. Um, But they also then turned back into Dr. Jekyll and they said, well, maybe we went a little bit too far. So let's create a task force to sort of figure out really what we should do. We're functioning on on kind of short notice right here. So they created this task force with a long, Algonquin-sounding name, the Task Force on Victim Privacy and the Public's Right to Know, which meant for the final time last Friday, approved its final report. One of the members uh, of that task force was Colleen Murphy. Colleen Murphy is, in fact, the executive director uh, and general counsel of the Connecticut Freedom of Information Commission. She was one of two dissenting votes as the uh, as the task force uh, gave f- a final approval, approval to its final report, which will now be transmitted to the legislature for consideration in the coming legislative session. So Colleen Murphy uh, joins us today. Uh, first of all, what's, what's in this report? What did the other 50, what did the 15 VS votes approve on Friday? Well, there were four recommendations that were ultimately put forward by the task force, and they dealt the, 
the first two dealt with what had been passed by the legislature in the prior session that you referenced. Uh, the first recommendation had to do with witness uh, identification, and it exempts, it, it carries forward the exemption that the legislature passed for the identity of witnesses who are under the age of 18 with regard to specific crimes. Then the second one is the, probably the largest recommendation, and it involved those photos, 911 calls, video, and any other images related to homicides. And the task force recommended that those records, whether they be images or audio recordings, would be exempt, but they provided a construct, a, a bare construct, if you will, of uh, how to access those uh, short of obtaining copies of them. The, the recommendation says that that those types of records shall be available for inspection or listening, and that if you want to obtain a copy, you need to make your case as to why you should be able to get a copy. And you make your case by showing that there's government wrongdoing, negligence, malfeasance, and that there, therefore there's a public interest in them. Uh, then the third provision has to do with uh, looking going forward and seeing if there is a need to further balance victim privacy and freedom of information to perhaps further cut back on the freedom of information laws. And then the fourth recommendation is to look at how much this is going to cost us to do all of this, um, to, con to urge the legislature to look at all of the fiscal implications on the state police who would be handling this new program on, on municipal authorities as well and uh, on the Freedom of Information Commission that would likely hear cases under these new provisions. So, uh, you know, under the new provision, so imagine then, uh, because uh, th this is one of the many puzzling aspects of this, but uh, imagine then that I'm a reporter and I, I do want access to photos or 911 calls or something like that relating to a homicide, uh, relating to a crime scene. And, and let's say that um, I... Um, I, all, I do believe that one of the reasons I should get this is because I believe there's something very important about the story that's being left out. And maybe it does have to do. Maybe I actually think that, you know, the police were involved somehow. Who knows what I think? So I, I go and I try to get those. They tell me no. Uh, the, the, the police department of Town X says, no, you can't have them. Um, and and. And maybe they even make a counter argument, which is like one of the things that seems to be uh, in these recommendations is the notion that um, if these things are an invasion of somebody's privacy, they shouldn't be released to me. And I think also one of the things that came up was if uh, a recording uh, gives evidence of a victim's mental agony or somebody making a 911 calls uh, distress or mental agony, um, they shouldn't be released to me. So they invoke all these kinds of arguments. And there we stand. Are, are you guys, is your commission then going to be the ruling authority? Are we going to have to go make our cases to you? Right. I think that's the idea that an appeal would need to be taken to the Freedom of Information Commission and the records perhaps would be transferred to our commission and the commission would have to now look at this new standard that's in that would be in the law were this to pass into law uh, for whether there would be an unwarranted invasion of privacy if the records were provided. And I guess that's the area that, from my standpoint as the executive director of the FOI Commission, I had problems with because this new standard, you know, on a global scale now puts the burden on, on the person who wants access to a government record to establish why 
why you need to have it as opposed to the other way around. In the rest of the FOI world, it's assumed that the record is public unless there's a specific exemption that says otherwise, and it's for the agency to prove why somebody isn't entitled to their government's records. Um, you may or may not want to go where I'm about to go, and feel free to exempt yourself if you want to. But first of all, there, we should mention that there were a number of other people. It was a 15-2 to 2 vote uh, in, in favor of improving the recommendations, although there were a few other people in the panel who said, look, I don't really agree with these recommendations. I hope they don't pass in the legislature, but the other options weren't so good. This was sort of the better compromise, so uh, I'm going with this. And But that amounted to maybe another three or four panelists, something like that. Um, and and there, I read at least one set of comments. Uh, from from one panelist, uh, one of those three or four people who said, really, the composition of the panel was a little bit weighted against or maybe even a lot weighted against freedom of, of information, that that once you sort of got there and sat down and kind of, you know, pulled everybody in the room, it was pretty clear from the get go that this panel was probably going to be willing to consider some kind of curtailment of the FOI law that we've had for decades. I think that was a concern uh, at the start, and I think it did play out throughout our sessions. You know, if you looked at the makeup of the panel just based upon the titles and what people on the panel do in their daily lives, you know, day in, day out, you could sort of see that the representations were more on the side of uh, privacy, people who represent victims in one way or another, or people who view themselves as expressing the viewpoints of victims versus there was somebody from the FOI commission, which was me. There were four representatives from the media. There was a representative from the Connecticut Council on FOI. And just if you look at those numbers, that's six people that are generally viewed more in the openness camp uh, versus the, the rest of the panel. Now, you, you were talking to Colleen Murphy, Executive Director and General Counsel for Connecticut's Freedom of Information Commission. Heading into the legislative session, this is going to get turned into some kind of bill. We don't know what the bill will look like yet, but there probably will be a bill that looks something like the recommendations in this report. Now, in your capacity, ex officio, do you, does that mean you go to public hearings on this and testify about the bill and what you think the, the impact of that bill would be? Well, I'll have to cross that bridge when I get there, but my my sense is that I would. I'd be wearing my hat as the uh, head, uh, the administrative head of the FOI commission, and you know, not unlike any other bill that we would try to go before the legislature to explain what the current status of the law is, and you know, what our belief is as to whether there's a need for the law in this case. Um, we bring out the issues that I attempted to bring out to the task force and. Uh, the reasons why I didn't feel I could support most of the recommendations. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's like, I'll just get on a soapbox for a second here and just say it seems to me there's a whole bunch of things going on here. One of them is, you know, this is the oldest FOI law in America, the one we have here in Connecticut, something that we've pointed to in the past with great pride. Um, and, and there really isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that it doesn't work right, or at least that it works too well, that too many documents, too many crime scene uh, photos or recordings are, are released to the public. I, I just don't think there's really a, a I mean, the, the case that seemed to be made was a speculative one, more of a what if something happened that we weren't too crazy about, not that there's really been a pattern of a problem with this law. So we're fixing a law that's not broken. Uh, we're, we're tilting the law against uh, public access to documents that the public ought to have a right to. And we're creating a pretty unwieldy situation for your commission and, and anybody else who has to parse all this stuff. It just what was a relatively simple question. Yes, 
yes, yes, you can have the documents because it's part of the public record, suddenly has become this incredibly thorny thing where, from what I can tell, yeah, first of all, the person who wants the documents has to make the case that, that, that he or she should get it. And, and you guys have to weigh all kinds of other factors. For example, is it your understanding that your commission would then also have to weigh the question of whether privacy was being invaded and, and whether or not the mental anguish of somebody making a 911 call was on display in that 911 call? Is that stuff that you would have to think about in terms of militating factors against releasing these documents? Yes, I, I think so. And, you know, that gives us a little bit of discomfort. Uh, and it's a, it would certainly be very new for us to get into those types of issues. And I think with the with Newtown in our rearview mirror, you know, just a little bit now, um, we're still all thinking of these records in terms of that horrific episode in in, in everyone's lives. Um, but the the difficulty of carrying this out for all time and all kinds of records um, really I don't think was studied by the task force or or well thought out and I think that's something that you know we will have to grapple with we had a another standard for invasion of privacy that we've used under another area of the law that uh, I, for one, thought would work well, and it was more objective. Um, but using the reasonable person, whether there be an invasion, as opposed to specific people who were involved in specific incidents and um, you know, seeing how they feel about their privacy and being invaded. I think it's going to be a big... It's going to be a big Pandora's box for us to get into. Yeah, I mean, you could easily, we're going to have to wrap up here, but you could easily make the, the argument that any crime scene photo invades somebody's privacy and that any 911 call almost innately, implicitly, will contain somebody in a state of mental agony or, or, or great distress because it's a 911 call. Uh, anyway, we have to stop here. Okay. But Colleen Murphy, uh, you're going to have an interesting year. Uh, I don't know if it'll be the interesting year you wanted, but it's the interesting year you're getting. Colleen Murphy is the executive director and general counsel for Connecticut's Freedom of Information Commission. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. And thanks to everybody here for helping organize the scramble. We will be back tomorrow with a show about magic, but we're going to talk about the neuroscience of magic, what happens to your brain when you're watching a magic act, and also why the resurgence of interest in the world of fantasy magic, whether it's Harry Potter or the books of Lev Grossman, who will be joining us tomorrow. And the Grammy goes to Taylor Swift. Thank you so much. Actually, Taylor, I'm sorry, the, the envelope was wrong. The winner was Weird Al Yankovic for his album Polka Party Remixed.